0: we are back, continuing our discussion with author James DiEugenio. said, Jesse Ventura, if you thought you already knew everything there was to know about the Kennedy assassination, think again and read Jim DiEugenio's Destiny Betrayed. It uh, might be a good time to mention that the opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Though personally, I certainly think they ought to. But anyway, the book... His destiny betrayed JFK, Cuba, and the garrison case.
1: Then as you go upward, we've already mentioned people like Shaw and Terry and Bannister, who I think were involved in manipulation of Oswald. Ruth and Michael Payne in Dallas, who I think were involved in manufacturing some of the evidence. Because Ruth Payne separated Marina from Lee when they were coming back from New Orleans. Uh-huh. okay, And all of his so-called possessions that Oswald—well, not all of them, but most of them—were in her station wagon, and she brought them to her garage. Right. And then, of course, once Oswald is apprehended, where does all this alleged evidence come from? Convicting him in the eyes of the public? Right. Of Mrs. Payne's garage.
0: Like the photographs of him holding the supposed murder weapon and the and the pistol supposedly shot Tippet, all of this stuff. The rifle itself supposed to have come out of the garage that morning. It's all very, it's all curious, yeah.
1: Yeah, all this comes from Ruth and Michael Payne, all right? So that's another part of, I believe, how it went down. And going up, if I had to name the middle management level, I would say that it would be consist of Davis Phillips and Howard Hunt, all right? Uh, We haven't talked about Phillips that much, have we?
0: We've actually not talked about David Phillips or E. Howard Hunt, Jim, and I think they're both worth a couple minutes. So who are these guys?
1: Howard Hunt was a veteran of the CIA along with Phillips going back to the 50s under Alan Dulles. They were involved in the overthrow of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala for United Fruit in 1954. Then when the CIA began in 1959, when they began to organize an anti-Castro movement, they were brought back in by Alan Dulles and some other CIA higher-ups to begin the preparations for the counter-program against Castro. Hunt was actually involved in the setting up of the political arm of the government in exile. That's how he knew most of these Cuban guys. And Phillips was involved in the propaganda arm. Now, Hunt resigned his position because he did not want to accept the liberals that Kennedy wanted installed in his government in exile, and he ended up working with Phillips on the propaganda arm of the operation. When the operation failed, Alan Dulles hired Hunt to help defend him against the Kennedy inquiry that was going on. See, because Unlike what we have today, when a disaster happens, like nine eleven, Bush didn't fire one person as far as I know. Yeah. Well, Kennedy was very upset about this whole Bay of Pigs thing. He thought he had been lied to. Let's not sugarcoat it. Let's not say misled. <laughs> he thought he had been lied to. Right. Deliberately lied to by Dulles about this operation. So he had a thorough inquiry that went on in the White House, and there was another one at the CIA Dulles was one of the witnesses and in my chapter on the Bay of Pigs which is one of the keystones of the book I go through how Bobby Kennedy cross-examined Alan Dulles about this operation and how lame most of the answers were that Dulles had and so both of them Bobby and JFK came to the conclusion that Dulles had deliberately misrepresented the operation and his chances for success. So Kennedy fired Dulles, Cabell, the uh, assistant director, and Bissell, the director of operations. Well, Hunt was on Dulles' staff at this time, and he prepared Dulles' counterattack, which was that it really wasn't his fault. It was Kennedy's fault because he had so-called canceled the D-Day bombing that was supposed to take out Castro's Air Force. I'm very, very thorough in showing that this was a lie. There were no D-Day missions scheduled for that day outside of Cuba. They were contingent upon the invasion force capturing a beachhead. Right. Kennedy wanted those uh, those missions flown from inside Cuba. He did not want to say the United States was attacking Cuba. Right. Because... He had made a pledge a few days before. There would not be any direct intervention in the invasion by America. So he wanted those missions flown from inside Cuba. Well, the force could never pin down a beachhead. <laughs> so the planes couldn't be flown. Dulles then twisted this to say that Kennedy had been canceled. Yeah. He got this story out through a reporter for Fortune magazine, Charles Murphy, yeah. with Hunt's help. And Kennedy was so furious when he read this article that the reporter was an Air Force Reserve officer. Kennedy kicked him out of the Reserve. And Murphy, the reporter, wrote a letter to Edward Lansdale later, which I actually found, in which he said, Kennedy was so angry at that story that he stripped me of my Air Force Reserve status. But I didn't really care because my loyalty was never to him. It was always to Alan Dulles. And see, that shows you the mentality, the the psychology that these guys have. They really don't believe the President of the United States runs the country.
0: We could talk at great length about that whole Bay of Pigs thing, and you could do an hour on that easily. I mean, the CIA, the punchline is they assured him, look, we're going to take this beachhead. I guess the deal was they were going to hold the beach for 48 hours. They would declare this the new free Cuba. We could recognize it. And then... We could give them aid once they were operating in Cuba. Well, they picked a bad spot. They got shot up. Kennedy was also told, apparently, that don't worry, the Cubans hate Castro. Once we come ashore, they, right. will, they will chuck him aside and they will hail us as their new liberators. And then the, the exact opposite happened. Everybody rallied to Castro's side. These armed men coming ashore were considered suspect. And uh, it was a spectacular failure. Did you want to talk about uh, the, the next layer up in the CIA from that?
1: So I believe Hunt who was organizing the CRC and knew most of these Cubans Yeah, with Phillips, because see, Phillips, and this is one of the most important discoveries of the ARB, Phillips was running the anti- fair play for Cuba committee operation within the CIA.
0: The group Oswald was passing pamphlets out for.
1: Right, yeah. which means he had to have been part of the Oswald operation. Right if you agree as, as I do and I know you do that Oswald was not a communist
0: he right. was
1: really an intelligence operative Right. that is what he was doing there Yeah. in New Orleans and then of course Phillips is seen with Oswald in August of 1963 by Antonio Vesiana at the Southland building in Dallas and then Phillips is running the Cuba desk in Mexico City at the time Oswald was supposed to be there and Dan Hardway and Eddie Lopez found out that Phillips lied to them indiscriminately Okay, about what happened in Mexico City when Oswald was supposed to be there. So that is what I think the middle level is. Then I believe at the top of the operational level, I think you have people like Angleton and uh, Helms with Dulles as the uh, connecting point between the operators and the power elite. I believe, and I I advance some evidence for this in the book, these guys would never have done what they did unless they knew they were going to be protected by the eastern establishment who would cover them in the media. In other words, they would jump on this Oswald did it cover story and never let it go. And they would not have done what they did unless they had those insurances. Because in the book, I talk about John Hay Whitney, The editor of the New York Herald Tribune at the time. Yes, who is, to my knowledge, is the first guy who came up with this crazy kid Oswald story, because he was at his offices that night. The owner of the newspaper got worth seven hundred million dollars. His his biographer said he was forced into service as a copy editor. (laughs) Now. Is that the most bizarre thing you've ever heard? Well,
0: it depends on what kind of copy he's writing.
1: This guy worth $700 million yeah. has to go to work as a copy editor that yeah. night? Yeah. And it's his paper that has the first editorial saying that these are usually instances of crazy people manifesting their psychosis. By, and By the way, that's the story everybody had within a few days.
0: Let me ask you this, Jim. Um, in the Oliver Stone movie, there's a Mr. X. In real life, the Mr. X was a man named Fletcher Prouty. I'm, I'm glad to say I was able to have lunch with Prouty uh, uh, many years back. He he basically was the guy that tells Garrison that, look, they, we manufacture these stories about who people are right and left, and the fact that Oswald's story, his whole story about being a defector, all this stuff, was all so ready to go that it points to the fact that it was all prepared in advance.
1: And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, Stone took some liberties with that story. Right. Because Prouty and Garrison didn't know each other until afterwards. True. Okay. But I've seen some of the letters between Prouty and Garrison, and that's essentially what he was telling him. you know, that he was on the right track, that this whole Oswald thing was nothing but a cover story, which he had been involved with many of them, you know, when he was with the CIA, you know, and he told him the whole story about him seeing this newspaper in um, New Zealand said, oh my God, this is just two hours after the assassination. <laughs> and they've got all this information on this obscure guy. I mean, that nobody, you know, hardly anybody knew about, you know, a few hours ago. And then they've got this whole file story on him with a picture and everything. Let's put it this way. If you take a look at the things Oswald's doing in the summer of 1963, he's picking up all these, this publicity. He's on these busy streets in New Orleans. When suddenly TV cameras come, you know, on Canal Street, International Trademark. Then he goes over to the local newspapers. He wants to get interviewed. Then he goes over to this radio station. He does this interview with Ed Butler and Carlos Bringier, two CIA guys. Yeah. You know, and he does it twice. So in other words, all this stuff is in the network, ready to go.
0: Yeah, I remember Walter Walter Cronkite intoning about how uh, the, the the suspect is a communist and uh, and they already had the footage of him in New Orleans talking on, you know, on the radio about about stuff and
1: uh except Doug he slipped up. You know what I'm talking about? I I yes,
0: I I do he, know that. Yes.
1: He said the whole time I was in the Soviet Union I was under the protection of the oh excuse me. I was not under the protection <laughs> of the State Department. <laughs> okay. And, and then in the Warren Commission, what do they do? They blank out right. the knot.
0: <laughs> yes, the we, we we wanna thank the late great Hal Verb, a San Francisco researcher that had him on had me on his T V show many years ago for the being the one that figured that out. That was that was a good piece of work by Hal. I also have to laugh at something you said about 20 years ago when talking about Oswald pamphleting and how much publicity he got. You said we were at a, at a gathering and you said, hey, try this sometime. Call up your local TV station and say, I'm going to be doing some pamphleting downtown a little bit later and see if they send a camera out. <laughs> yeah, not, not likely to happen
1: no i
0: don't think so <laughs> well jim you've made an excellent case for these the shadowy connections of of the cia slash anti-castro cubans to oswald and manipulating oswald there 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 seems to be little question about those connections the fbi is a little bit more complicated of a story they certainly got involved in burying data uh based on the fact that the commission originally was not intending to really solve the problem uh, but let's talk about the fact there's some pretty good evidence that Oswald had some FBI connections himself. He may have been an informant. When he got arrested in New Orleans, he asked to speak to an FBI agent, and, and they sent one out. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover put a memo out while Oswald was still in Russia saying, someone appears to be using this man's a name in, in America. That that, that seems suspicious. Um, all kinds of crazy connections between the FBI and this case. How would you uh, How would you summarize them?
1: In describing Oswald today once you dump the whole thing, the Warren Commission view, I think you can pretty safely say and back it up with evidence that Oswald was working for the CIA as an agent provocateur, you know, and he was working for the FBI as an informant. I think one of the most revealing things is the the incident you just mentioned, Yeah. where after he gets in the scuffle with Carlos Bringier, you know, as he's distributing the pamphlets, you know, on Canal Street,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that uh, he gets arrested. Now, just just think of this for a moment, you know, because the one commission treats this like there's nothing unusual. <laughs> if you're really a communist and you get arrested, don't you call somebody in your communist cell, you know, to come down and bail you out? What does this guy do? He calls the FBI. <laughs>
0: And and they respond. And the best part, the guy comes out to talk to Oswald for a couple hours after he's arrested for pamphleting.
1: Right, right. So this absolutely makes no sense in the real world. But the Warren Commission just writes it out like, oh, that's nothing unusual about this, you know. And so what happened is that when William Walter, who was a, a, a staffer at the FBI office when that call came in, Said that he looked for Oswald's file. And there was an Oswald file at the New Orleans office under the name of Warren DeBreeze, who, by the way, is one of the guys I interviewed for my book. This makes perfect sense because DeBreeze spoke fluent Spanish along with Regis Kennedy. That's why they were the two guys on the Cuban exile beat in New Orleans. But DeBreeze was not in the office at that time, so they sent over another guy. Named Quigley. Let me ask you a question. If you just got arrested for pamphleting, why do you need to talk to two hours for an FBI guy? <laughs> what is there to say?
0: You can say it in 10 minutes, I think.
1: Right. So why did Quigley have to stay there for that long? In my opinion, and I qualify this as opinion, in my opinion, Oswald was explaining the whole thing to him. You know that this was really just a charade, and that he was doing this as part of this anti-FPCC thing for the CIA, and he was just informing them because the FBI also had a program, led by Carter Dick Deloach, against the FPCC at the time. Yeah. And in my opinion, that that's what was that long discussion, you know, was about. And then also James Phelan, one of the more compromised journalists on the whole. Kennedy case, mentioned that he was in Hoover's office just a day or two after the Kennedy assassination, and he got the distinct impression that Hoover was going ahead and burying all the FBI contact sheets, you know, Mm -hmm. that Oswald had with them. And there's another guy, Harry Dean, who was actually doing the same thing Oswald was doing, right? He was an FBI penetration agent with the fair play for Cuba committee, and he was doing the same thing Oswald was doing, you know, leafleting. Understand, at that period in time, the Cuban Missile Crisis, Mongoose, the Bay of Pigs invasion, both the FBI and the CIA were bonkers about Cuba. So if you're going to set up an organization that's going to say the opposite, fair play for Cuba committee, and you're going to point out the mistakes the United States has made, you know they're going to go ahead and riddle you with surveillance, and that's what happened.
0: Let's talk about the fact that uh, that there's obviously, if Oswald's an agent provocateur pretending that he's pro Castro, there's obviously an arrow being pointed back at Castro. I mean, when LBJ late in life uh, sort of went on national on the national media to say, you know, I always thought that Castro may have had a role in this thing, and of course here's LBJ, the man who obviously most directly benefited from the assassination. Just wondering about your comments about LBJ saying that and the fact that there clearly appears to be on the surface a connection between uh, Oswald and Cuba and Castro and being pro-Castro that evidently was manufactured. Does that sound fair? Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't think there's really much of a question about that. And I think that one of the ways to look at it when you analyze the whole thing is that one of the aims of the people involved was to provoke an attack upon Cuba. I think it's a very tangible kind of um, tangent to the plot. That's one of the ways you can interpret Oswald going down and wanting to get an in-transit visa to go to Cuba first and then to the Soviet Union down in Mexico City. That was what he was ostensibly doing there. I don't know if you're aware of this. The night of the assassination... Castro went on national TV out of Havana. He said, look, you're going to tell me that there is a Castro sympathizer who is so stupid that he goes on the city streets of a southern city with all these Cuban exiles in it, and he starts a leaflet about fair play for Cuba to me by himself?
0: I did not know this.
1: Yeah, he said that. Obviously— this guy is some kind of FBI double agent. And, he's, and then he says, and obviously this whole thing about this pamphleting in New Orleans and his visit to Mexico City, obviously the right-wing elements in the government want to provoke another attack on Cuba. He actually said this the night he, sat, he analyzed wow. the whole thing. Wow. And he said this on national radio. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that certain people... You know, in part as part of the plot, wanted to blame this on this Castro, supposed Castro sympathizer, and go ahead and say that this is what we have to do now, since Castro was behind it. Now, what happened though is that Hoover and Johnson decided not to go that route. They were afraid that the Soviet Union would intervene, like they had in the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it would bring the world to the right. brink of nuclear warfare again.
0: We're, b- we're back to that whole World War III scenario again, and not wanting to play that card.
1: That put the brakes on this scenario to go ahead and reinvade the island. By, by the way, this is not theory at all, because you actually had the tapes. You know, Johnson saying this. And so this is what goes ahead. He uses to intimidate warn. And this is how the fallback position of the crazy kid Oswald is arrived at. That's not theory. That's, that's
0: fact. The book is Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. All right, we need to take one final break. Let's do that. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We've got plenty more in our third segment.